Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Before introducing our topic and guest today, I would ask that if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as support the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, to please go to our website, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. We thank you for your generosity. This past February, we recorded the podcast, Redefining Death by Revising the UDDA, with child neurologist Christopher DeCock. In that interview, Chris discussed medical and ethical concerns surrounding efforts to revise the Uniform Determination of Death Act, or UDDA. That podcast is linked in the show notes. Today, Chris returns to give us an update on where the revision process stands and maybe tell us where it's going. After this, he and I will discuss normothermic regional perfusion, a controversial protocol being proposed with regard to organ donation. Krista Cock, welcome back to Bioethics on Air. Thank you for having me, Joe. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to have you back. So um, we can dispense with the uh, with the biographic information because it's uh, it's it's it was in our previous uh, podcast with you and, and listeners. If they haven't heard the first one, they can listen to your first interview uh, and get a background for you. But I was wondering, I would like to get a little bit of background before we move into our our podcast today. So back in February of this year, as I said in the intro, we recorded the podcast Redefining Death. Uh, by revising the UDDA. And again, it's it's linked in the show notes. And in that podcast, you explained in detail uh, some of the problems, both medical and ethical, with uh, efforts to revise the Uniform Determination of Death Act. And I was wondering if you could just give us a brief overview of the, of the issues at play to kind of set the scene for our discussion today. Sounds great. So I think the most important thing to remember is that currently patients diagnosed as brain dead appropriately by the current criteria of the American Academy of Neurology actually can gestate pregnancies and go through puberty. And so those patients, I have a very hard time believing that they're, if you will, ventilated corpses, that they're actually dead. Because in all of biology, when something dies, they undergo disintegration and decomposition. And that's not happening. So right off the bat, just on the face of it, you can tell that there's a problem. Now, I would like to just quickly say, you know, what is the Uniform Determination of Death Act and why is a pediatric neurologist talking to you? So it's a very short act. It's been very successful. It's adopted by most states in the union. And it simply says that an individual who has sustained either irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions or irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem, is dead. Now, that's a good law. It's very simple. It doesn't specify whose criteria. It just says accepted medical standards in it. And by and large, it's served our country for, you know, over 40 years. Now, the problem is when that act was written, technology isn't where it was today. So patients who met the clinical criteria for brain dead truly were brain dead. However, as technology improved and we got better at resuscitating people and keeping people alive, all of a sudden, there was this subgroup of po- this subpopulation of patients who were not whole brain dead, but only partially brain dead. They met the criteria for brain death according to the American Academy of Neurology, but sometimes they could live up to 20 years. And like I said earlier, they can just stay pregnancies and go through puberty. And so that really caused a lot of concern. And when you look at the data, about half of the patients that are currently diagnosed, according to those criteria, half of them still have residual brain function. And primarily, that's function of the hypothalamus. And that's the part of the brain that allows you to have salt water balance. It allows temperature regulation. It's a rule. what allows you to go through puberty, for example. 
And so what the revision for the Uniform Determination of Death Act was trying to do, it was trying to change from a whole brain death standard to a partial brain death standard. So basically the, the words that they use or they want to um, align the law with the practice of medicine. But as we discussed last time, that on its face is wrong-headed. You know, you don't just change something. You don't, you know, take an inadequate test and make it the rule of law. That just doesn't make any sense logically. And it's very interesting because this partial brain death standard, otherwise known as the neurorespiratory protocol, has strong support from groups like the American Academy of Neurology. And in fact, they've even hijacked the term whole brain death. They actually call it brain as a whole, but what they're really saying is on the whole, your brain is dead. You know, not that it's actually dead, but it's, you know, dead enough. Um, and so they just want to, you know, get rid of this disconnect between the law and medicine. And Another thing that was proposed in this change was changing the word from irreversible, which means you cannot reverse, to permanent, which is you will not reverse. And the real problem with this is patients such as Jahai McMath, who is sort of the poster child for this, who was correctly diagnosed as brain dead and who did undergo puberty, um, she would now be legally dead. And once you're legally dead, I mean, there's no health insurance, there's no rights, there's no privileges or anything under the law. And so it really leaves these patients and these families in a lurch. Right. So there's a, there a lot to it. Um, and again, for listeners who may have not listened to the first podcast, please go back and listen to it because Chris does a great job of really uh, delving into this very deeply. All right. So bring us up to uh, where we're recording this on on August 4th of 2023 and just a couple of weeks ago the the uniform law commission uh, had their their big meeting in I guess in Honolulu Hawaii and so Chris I was wondering if you could tell us uh, what happened at that meeting specifically concerning the the UDDA committee sure so to be clear I'm an observer for the drafting committee. So that's a small group, a group of lawyers, a bunch of observers. There's almost over a hundred observers there, but most didn't attend personally like I did. Um, but it was the first time that this drafting committee was able to take its work and present it to the Uniform Law Commission as a whole. And so that's a group of, you know, 200 plus you know, different lawyers that are generally appointed by the states to represent their states and help propose uniform laws. And the original Uniform Determination of Death Act was promulgated by the Uniform Law Commission. And so that's why with this disconnect, they thought, well, it makes sense. Let's go back to the Uniform Law Commission and see if we can't, you know, sort of tidy this up. And so that was really the first chance that the committee as a whole, if you will, heard what the drafting committee was doing. And it was actually somewhat unprecedented because usually drafting committee meets for a year and then you present to the committee as a whole. But there was so much lack of consensus, discussion, stuff like that, that the drafting committee has already been meeting for two years. So that in itself is unusual. Interesting. Um, so is I'm going to assume that, and, I, and again, I have no background um, or no experience with the Uniform Law Commission, but this seems to be a, a pretty controversial issue within the commission as a whole. Well, I'm not sure if it's a controversial as a commission as a whole. Within the drafting committee, there's definitely differences of opinion. You know, I can't speak for the, you know, the people I don't know. Um, but for example, there's sort of a lot of misinformation. So the drafting committee, when they presented this, they talked about three options. And they said, well, there's those who want to base death on strictly consciousness, and that's not what this is doing. And then there are those that want to get rid of brain death. That's not what this is doing. And then there's us, and we just want to align the law with medicine. 
And they actually didn't talk about a rather sizable group which actually wants to bring medicine in line with the law. And so luckily, one of the commissioners said, look, you know, there's not just three options, there's four options. And this fourth option isn't a fringe opinion of a few people. In fact, there was a statement by the American College of Physicians, which is an organization four times larger than the American Academy of Neurology, who said, no, you can't abandon whole brain death for partial brain death. You can't change the law to reflect inadequate medical practice. You should really improve medical practice to be in line with the law because the law is correct. The law is based on sound data and understanding, and the law is based on biology. Now, one of the other things that they said is, look, they're not actually changing the definition of death. Now, technically, that's correct. The Uniform Determination of Death Act doesn't say anything about what death is. It says how you determine death. And so they say this is just criteria, but both you and I know how you determine something is going to be based on what you think that something is. And so if you say, look, this neurorespiratory standard or this partial brain death standard is enough for someone to be dead, that is a non-biological based definition of death as opposed to a whole brain standard which is a biological-based definition of death. And the reason I say that is these patients that only have partial brain death, again, they don't disintegrate and die, right? Whereas there's never been a case in the literature with someone who's actually had whole brain death who has not disintegrated and died. And so changing the determination will change the definition of death because it's what you're testing for, right, that really matters. And to be clear, the neurorespiratory standard says dead enough is good enough, right? And that's not biologically or scientifically sound. If the patient continues, if they don't cease to be the kind of thing that they are, and we can think of humans as a unity identity whole, and if they do not have loss of self-integration, which leads to decomposition, they're not dead. And we know from the literature, we know from cases like Jahai McMath, that the neurorespiratory you know, proposal doesn't actually test for death. And so changing the criteria would drastically change how you define death. Yeah. Very, very interesting stuff here. So, Chris, I'd like to go back and, and pick up on um, something you you talked about. You're talking about statements that different groups have made, and I'd like you to comment on on some of those. So, I was wondering if you could tell us, to the extent that you can, about some of the the organizations that submitted statements to the UDDA committee. And I'm thinking, I mean, uh, we at the NCBC, we partnered with the, uh, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops on a statement, and I got to give you a shout out. Um, to listeners. So, uh, Chris, you played a, a very important role in the, the drafting of the of the, the joint USCCB uh, NCBC statement. So, thank you for that. Our, our efforts that, that uh, I don't know if it was Tuesday night or Wednesday night at Notre Dame, uh, they paid off uh, very, very well. But you also mentioned the American College of uh, Physicians who submitted statements as well, too. So, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that. And, and overall, do you know if the statements or the comments that were submitted, were they in favor of revising the UDDA or were they opposed? Well, so first of all, there's one more thing I'd like to say that happened at the meeting before we specifically okay. talk about statements, if that's okay. It's fine with One very interesting thing. So, when you're at the Uniform Law Commission's annual meeting, the drafting committee is up on, you know, this dais, on this podium. And one of the commissioners on the drafting committee actually got off the podium and stated that even though he was in favor of changing the definition of death, that we shouldn't be messing with this because we're going to lose uniformity. And another uh, observer who is very, very much in favor of this change, um, Thaddeus Pope out of uh, Minneapolis, he's a lawyer, 
he even said in the literature that we shouldn't be changing this because what's going to happen is if we mess with this, you know, most states aren't going to change because it's working, you know, by and large, it's working. Some might change, but some might abandon it. And, and that, I think, is one of the biggest issues to the Uniform Law Commission, because the purpose of the uniform law is to propose uniform law. And in fact, one of the commissioners said that the Uniform Law Commission should reflect consensus. It should not impose consensus. And these letters, and so now we can talk about these, show that there is not consensus, right? There's no consensus in the medical community. You've got groups like the American Academy of Neurology who state that the neurorespiratory standard is okay. And the part of the brain that allowed Jahai to go through puberty, the hypothalamus, is simply not important. However, data shows us that hypothalamus is associated with phenomenal consciousness. So I don't know about you, but I would love to know before someone takes my organs out that I'm not actually going to feel that, right? So you've got groups like the American Academy of Neurology. Um, the organ procurement networks were all in favor of changing it. Um, the American College of Physicians, like I said, a group four times larger than the American Academy of Neurology, said, no, you can't abandon whole brain death. And to get back to the point of irreversible and permanent, they felt that cardiopulmonary death or circulatory respiratory death, whatever you want to call it, could be permanent, but that brain death could not be permanent. Whereas the American Academy of Neurology states that, yeah, brain death could be permanent. And in fact, the reporter for the Uniform Law Commission stated that because of these studies with pigs' brains, where we decapitate pigs um, and then look and then reperfuse them with blood after we've decapitated them, that some brain activity comes back. And therefore, brain death is actually permanent and not um, irreversible. To me, it's interesting, but it's irrelevant. First of all, you know, with very few exceptions, humans are not pigs. And secondly, we're never going to decapitate someone's head and try to stick it on someone else's body. I mean, there's this guy out in Europe who's looking for research subjects. So if you're hard up and you'd like to end it and have an extremely small chance of success, there's someone looking for volunteers for head transplants. So, you know, there's, there's just no good data, you know, to do that. And, you know, science fiction isn't reality. And so, you know, there's, you know, some of the statements just seem a little far-fetched. And then other statements, so for example, Catholic nurses are like, no, we can't do that, right? Um, uh, someone once told me, they said, well, you know, with with the um, the USCCB, NCBC statement, which, by the way, you shouldn't have said I helped with it because that undermines the whole work altogether. They said, well, you only believe that because you're Catholic. And I told them, I said, no. I'm Catholic because the Catholic Church teaches the truth. And as we pointed out in that NCBC statement, you know, John Paul II said in his pontificate that whole brain death was in line with sound anthropology, but only if it were complete and irreversible loss of brain functions. And this partial brain death standard isn't that. Um, other groups, such as Right for Life, right, the Right for Life groups, were opposed to this change, and disability groups were very much opposed to this change. In fact, the Terry Schiavo, you know, Hope Network, and the ARC, and other groups that support disabilities, you know, were against such a change. Um, hospital associations, by and large, seem to be good with the change. In fact. Um, I've pulled just a couple of them here to read, you know, a couple of the things. So, for example, in the draft, you know, they want to change the definition of death, but they're going to do that, you know, but they'll also off offer an opt-out. So if you don't want to be declared brain dead on this, you know, partial brain death standard, you could 
potentially opt out. Well, the Texas Hospital Association specifically said, you know, we think that it's unreasonable for, you know, patients to decide whether or not brain death is an acceptable standard, and it really should be up to the physician to decide that. And if you don't allow that, if you allow someone, you know, who has, you know, a scientific reason for not agreeing with a partial brain death standard or a religious reason, you know, such as conservative Jews and Muslims who just don't believe in the concept of brain death altogether, they said, you know, you're going to be harming the patients by not allowing them to be determined dead, which doesn't make any sense to me at all. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And, and I, oh, sorry. I, I was just going to say that uh, I'm going to. I have linked the uh, the NCBC USCCB statement as well as the American College of Physicians statements uh, to the to the show notes here, so people can go and take a look at those if they if they want. So, Chris, from what you said, it sounds like there were arguments on both sides of the issue, both for mm-hmm. and against revisions. I'm just wondering. Um, what was the the response of of the drafting committee members to this? Do, do they normally get, or does the the Uniform Law Commission, other committees, did they get this number of comments or statements? And I'm just wondering how they how they uh, how they viewed it. Were they surprised by it? Were they concerned by what they they read? Or just your your uh, perspectives on that? Sure. Um, I don't think anyone on the drafting committee was surprised. Again, we've been at this for two years, Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't think there was a big surprise. I can tell you I was very pleased to see the American College of Physicians statement, Mm -hmm. um, you know, supporting, you know, what is, you know, biological reality. Um, And, you know, the one thing that did surprise people, or at least surprised me, was the Arizona Hospital and Healthcare Association said, you know, we don't want opt-outs, we, we want to change the definition of death, but they said in their statement, and I quote, ultimately, we do not believe the Uniform Law Commission should adopt revisions to the UDDA without support from key professional medical associations referenced above. And they talked about the American Medical Association, who hasn't said anything about this issue. They mentioned the American College of Physicians, who's opposed to it. And they mentioned the American Academy of Neurology, you know, the ones that write the clinical criteria, who are in favor of it. And so, you know, they they said, look, we would love to do that, but there's no consensus. And they actually talked about how when the original UDDA was, you know, proposed in 1980, it was done in conjunction with meetings with the American Medical Association. So they were meeting and discussing this together, not just unilaterally. And the American Bar Association was on board. And so it seems to be that maybe this is a much different process than what had been done in the past. Could very well be. All right. You you mentioned earlier as well uh, some of the comments of the various um, commissioners who were on this drafting board. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about that. And again, Chris, to the extent that you can, because I know um, there's certain things you can say and probably certain things that you can't, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what actually happened uh, in the drafting committee meeting. So other than what you've already stated, what are uh, what are some of the arguments that may have been put forward in favor of the revision, arguments against the the revision? Was there dialogue? I kind of like what, what was the process of all of this? Did, did were people able to engage each other? Kind of just tell us a little bit about sure, the actual sure, meeting about the process. So so basically, what happened is the chair of the committee, um, Judge Thuma from Arizona, you know, sort of addressed the group as a whole. And, you know, said, this is what's going on, you know, in general. And then let's talk about, you know, this section, you know, section three, the determination of death. Section two is definitions. They didn't talk about that at all. Um, Section one is just an introduction. But like they said, let's talk about the determination of death. And there's this option. We leave the Uniform Determination of Death Act alone. Or this option, you know, we change to this neurorespiratory proposal. And then after they were done, 
people were able to go up to the mics and ask questions, and these people being commissioners. So observers, you know, I think there were a couple observers present, um, but this is a meeting for the commissioners. So I wasn't allowed to say anything in the actual meeting. You know, I was present. I was going to say, um, you, were, you were in the room as an observer, but... I was in the room, but I wasn't allowed to ask questions because I'm not a commissioner. And so they would ask questions, and then either the reporter or the chair would answer the questions, and then other commissioners on the drafting committee could answer questions in turn. And so it was more of like a Q&A session more than anything else. And like I said, you know, one of the, I thought the most telling comments was the commissioner who said, look, you know, the purpose of the Uniform Law Committee is to reflect consensus not to impose consensus. And since clearly there's not a medical consensus here, we probably shouldn't be messing with this. Um, and so they did that. The bulk of the time was spent on that Determination of Death Act. And then after that, um, there's a section on time to gather, a, a section on you know informing the family, a section on the opt-out, uh, the previous two weren't really asked a ton of questions about the opt out. Um, a lot of people are like, well, you can't opt out. You know, you, you, you know, you're either dead or you're not dead. And then some other people are like, well, no, you know, there, there should be an opt out. Um, but what, what I got a sense of is there was some confusion too, because one of the commissioners thought that if they didn't change to the neurorespiratory standard, that these, you know, severely disabled patients would be forced to exist for years on ventilators, you know, not realizing that, no, this, this is talking about a determination of death. You know, as you and I both know, there's many ethical ways that you can withdraw care. You know, it's that disproportionate care. You know, the Catholic Church says, you know, we don't have to be on ventilators for 20 years if it's disproportionate. You know, you can ethically withdraw care. And so I think there was some misunderstanding as well and a little bit of fear. And unfortunately, one of the things that I don't think got answered very well is the concerns of the disability groups. It just seemed like those concerns were sort of, you know, brushed aside or ignored. And I think there should have been more discussion on those. Oh, hmm. Interesting. So what ultimately did the drafting committee do or not do? Uh, with regard to the UDDA? So the drafting committee, the goal was to present to the committee in a whole, kind of, if you will, get a feel for the room. At least that was my understanding. And that's why they had, you know, we either keep the current UDDA or we change, you know, the current determination of death or we change it to this neurorespiratory permanence as opposed to irreversible standard. Um, I don't know. I didn't feel like there was a lot of people that were like, yay, we need to do this. It seemed, it seemed really hesitant. And, um, you know, what may or may not be telling is I told you about the commissioner who said we shouldn't be messing with this, but then, um, the upcoming president said, well, you know, that might be true, but I don't know that we want to give this up yet either. Um, and so after afterwards, after they presented to the group as a whole, the commissioners on the drafting committee met by themselves. Um, as an observer, I was not, you know, invited to that discussion. And then what's going to happen is that the executive committee of the um, Uniform Law Commission is going to review sort of the transcript, you know, watch the recorded videos that were done and decide, you know, do we continue to go forward with this revision of the Uniform Determination of Death Act or, or is now time, time to get out because there's no medical consensus and um, obviously the chance of attaining uniformity like we have now is, you know, not, it's not going to happen. And, and I'll be honest, I, I honestly think that if the original Uniform Determination of Death Act were brought forward now, I don't think it would have 
been so widely accepted because there's a lot more mistrust in medicine. There's a lot right. more mistrust yeah. in law. I, I think we're living in, in a very different world than we did in 1980. Right. So I guess um, I, my next question is, so where do things stand with the UDA as we record the podcast today? Uh, would I be wrong in assuming that we're kind of status quo with it right now? So right now, the original UDDA is the law of the land. The purpose of the, you know, the revision for the UDDA was to, if they felt that this was a good uniform act, that they would propose that to the states. So let's say, so there's one of two things that's going to that's going to happen now. The executive committee is going to say either yes, let's go forward, or no, let's stop. So if they say no, let's stop. None of the laws change. The you know the state laws that you know, I've accepted the UDDA would remain unchanged. Now, if they say, no, we really want to go forward with this, then there'll be another year of meetings where we'll try to hammer out these issues. And I don't know that there is a consensus from the commission as a whole as to which definition of death, you know, or which declaration of death they want, you know, either the UDDA as it stands or the neurorespiratory standard. Because for sure, when you brought that to the states, there wouldn't be both options. So one of those options would have to go in the drafting committee, and we'd work for another year, and then we'd present to the committee as a whole again at the next annual meeting next summer. And then if it's accepted, then it would go to the individual states. So the commissioners would have to bring this to their individual state legislatures to decide whether or not they wanted to adopt this, you know, proposal or not. Yeah. So again, we're, we're recording on August 4th of 2023. Do you have any idea when the executive, is executive committee or executive commission? It's, I think it's the executive committee of the Uniform Law Commission. So do you have any idea when the executive committee will come out publicly and say, we're going to either pursue this or we're not going to? Well, I don't know that there will actually be a public statement per se. Okay. I think what they'll probably do is they'll probably let the drafting committee members know we're going to go forward with this or not, because if we're going to go forward, they have to schedule a meeting. Got it. And if they don't schedule a meeting, so you- I'm not sure there's going to be a big public <laughs> statement, you know, about it. Hmm. But I can tell you, if I hear a whiff of it, I'll be more than happy to let you know. Absolutely. Let us know. Um, it's a, it's an important issue. All right. Um, want to change gears, but, uh, but before we go into normothermic regional perfusion, Chris, is there anything else you want to let us know about, uh, in terms of the UDDA? I just, I just don't want to cut you off if there's anything else important that you wanted listeners to know about. Well, the only thing I would say is there's been, like I said, a lot of misinformation. So for example, before we met nature, which is generally a well-respected, um, you know, publication stated that people that didn't agree with the neurorespiratory proposal suffered from ideological um, differences. Well, I'm sorry, the data isn't ideological. And if it's really something that's ideological, a group like the American College of Physicians wouldn't be supporting it. And so the media coverage that has been, you know, has occurred so far, I think is trying to, you know, change, you know, trying to make make people that are opposed to this change to be, you know, less sincere. You know, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's one of the things that's been bugging me because it's almost like you can't get a straight answer. Mm-hmm. No, I hear you. I hear you. Well, well, thank you for your work on this and, and supporting those commissioners who were, who were opposed to this. And, and, uh, and thank you for your work with us um, mm-hmm. on, on our statement. All right. So and actually, oh, actually, there is one last thing I'd like to say, just to clarify, because it's, it's, a, it's a muddy issue. So um, we, I'd mentioned this in the last podcast, but, you know, you don't even have to agree with me. But if you look at the scientific method, if you've got a test that's designed to do something like the clinical criteria that are supposed to determine whole brain death, and if they don't do the job they're supposed to do, which they currently do not do, 
you don't change the standard of depth. You improve testing to make inadequate tests. The basis of truth is simply wrongheaded. And there's just scientifically, it doesn't make any sense at all. And then the other thing is we've got to remember, you know, organ donation is not why this is happening. You know, the Uniform Law Commission was very clear that we're not doing this to obtain organs. But I think a lot of people in medicine have forgotten who these vulnerable patients are, and they only see them as what they can get out of them. And so I think, and to me, that's come up time and time again, is why aren't we erring on the side of caution for these vulnerable patients that we're supposed to be protecting? So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox, but that's, that's just, you know, sort of the thing that, that just bugs me about this. You know, it doesn't make logical sense. And, and we don't really seem to be caring about the patient. So. No, I love, I love having you on Chris, because you're passionate about this issue and, and you're also, and you're also very knowledgeable about it, obviously being a neurologist. Um, so no, love the perspectives. All right. Now we are going to change gears. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> well, actually we're not changing gears because it has, Everything to do with the idea of irreversible and permanent. This this is true. So we'll we'll sort of kind of change gears. How's that? We'll go with it. All right. So as I mentioned in the introduction, there's a a protocol called normothermic regional perfusion, or NRP for short. And Chris, I was wondering if you could uh, quickly tell us what this is and what are the reasons some people are calling for it. Okay. So, so we've talked a lot about brain death. So normal thermic regional perfusion actually has to do with organ donation after cardiac death. And the Uniform Law Commission said, you know, changing, you know, cardiopulmonary death from irreversible to permanent. Remember, that's one thing that's being proposed in the revision for the UDDA is not to forward this procedure because logically, and the American College of Physicians stated this in their statement, that logically, when someone has a do not resuscitate order, you know, it's not that you can't restart their heart, it's you're choosing not to restart the heart. But the problem is that creates, if you will, a potential slippery slope, even though it's correct, right? So technically, cardiopulmonary death is you know, not irreversible because we're choosing not to intervene, you know, normal thermic regional perfusion requires that cardiopulmonary death be permanent. So what normal thermic regional perfusion is, is after someone has died and their heart stops, and in general, I would think these would be patients with a do not resuscitate order. Um, they're declared dead by cardiopulmonary standard. And then you wait five minutes if they're an organ donor. Now, in the article that you're going to link in the notes by Trug and his colleagues about normal thermic regional perfusion syndrome, they say five minutes. The reality is some people only wait two minutes to harvest organs. You know, maybe some people wait longer, but five minutes, you know, is sort of a middle ground. So you wait five minutes and then you have to successfully resuscitate the patient and you stick um, cannula, you know, tubes in their body to pump new blood into them or at least start circulation with a heart and lung machine. But the funny part is you actually have to be successful in the resuscitation. And then another part of it that's particularly troublesome is that it requires you to actually clamp off or occlude the blood flow to the brain so that you ensure that the brain doesn't get that life-saving oxygen um, and, you know, come back, if you will. Right. Oy. How do you, um, and, and I've read the article, and, and to be honest with you, I find it troubling. 
Um, oh, so do I. To be quite honest. So, so evaluate it, Chris. How, how do you evaluate sure. the arguments in support of uh, no more thermic regional perfusion? So, well, let's first of all talk about the article. So the article does a good job of explaining the procedure, but I don't find the reasons for supporting this procedure to be particularly compelling to me. I, I felt like they glossed over, you know, some of the ethical pitfalls and, you know, just sort of highlighted the promises. And, and the whole reason for this is because, you know, currently, well, I mean, this is actually already being done, to be clear. Now, I don't know that patients are aware that this could be happening to them if they're an um, uh, organ donor, but this is already being done in some centers. Um and the idea is that you get, you know, better organs. They're not going to be as damaged uh, because, you know, you're not basically taking them out of the body, putting them in a, a freezer and then transporting them and putting them to someone else. You know, what you're doing is you're keeping them in the body and perfusing them so there's less damage. So basically you got fresher organs. But I'm not sure that the data is that convincing that it's that much better than the way organ donation is done right now. All right. So, Chris, in our written statement, you made five rather critical, I would say very critical, comments about normothermic regional perfusion. And I'll identify them. And I was wondering if you could comment on them. Sound Absolutely. Good? All right. Sounds like a plan. So, the first thing you said was uh, normothermic regional perfusion causes brain death. Can you explain? Sure. So, so like I said, what you're doing is, you know, when the patient is declared dead, you're waiting five minutes and then you're putting blood back into them. You're reoxygenating the body and you're actively preventing blood flow from going to the brain. Mm -hmm. Well, after five minutes, the brain isn't dead. I hate to break it to anyone, but the brain, the brain is not happy because it's not getting oxygen, but the brain is alive. The brain isn't right. dead. Now, obviously the brain's an organ, so it's not really alive or dead per se, but you know, it's in distress at this point. And so by clamping those arteries, you're preventing recovery, you know, and I don't know about you, but I know people who have been, you know, down for undisclosed periods of time without oxygen, who are coded and resuscitated and wake up. Right. Right. Yeah. And sometimes have minimal recovery. And so what this procedure is doing is what it needs to do is it needs to target the brain to make sure that the patient doesn't recover. And so... You know, it's inducing brain death. Now, people right. say, well, they've already been declared dead, so, you know, they can't be dead again. Well, I'm sorry. You know, we haven't necessarily waited for the heart to restart itself because it can do that too, right? right. I'm yeah. not sure if five minutes is long enough, but you're actively preventing blood flow and, you know, preventing recovery to the brain in order to ensure that the brain dies. Right. And so to me, the intention is to cut off the blood flow of the brain. So you're causing brain death. Right. I, I want to come back to that because there is a quote that I found just absolutely stunning, but it has to do with the animal data. So I want to come back to that quote when we right. talk we'll, about we'll that. We'll talk about that. Yeah, it, it's absolutely. But it goes to exactly what you just said. Because just as a follow-up on your claim that, that this causes brain death, how then, if, if what you're saying is correct, and I certainly don't disagree with you, how does this impact the dead donor rule? Well, the thing is, the dead donor rule, so there's, I don't know that there's actually a dead donor rule per se in the law, but the, you know, if you will, the societal consensus is that we don't want to harvest organs from patients that are not dead. Well, if we haven't waited for auto-resuscitation, and we're actively killing the brain to make sure they don't come back, I would argue that clearly we're concerned that the patient isn't dead 
if we have to take active steps to ensure that they do die. And so to me, that seems a pretty clear violation of the dead donor rule. Well stated. All right. And then the other thing is, if I may, Sure. As we mentioned before, you know, when these patients are deprived from, you know, oxygen to the brain and the brain is not dead, that means they also could have phenomenal consciousness or, sorry, phenomenal awareness because obviously they're unconscious, but they could experience the pain of having their organs removed and having their, you know, blood vessels ligated. Um, and so to me, that also violates the principle of non-maleficence, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's definitely harming the patient. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. The second of the, the, the criticisms you have, you wrote this. If a patient is declared dead on the basis that circulation has ceased irreversibly and is then successively resuscitated, the very basis for declaring death is invalidated. Speak to that. Well, seems pretty I mean, clear. I think it's pretty clear too, because in order for this to work, you have to successfully resuscitate someone. Now, I don't know about you. If my heart started and you resuscitated me, I would be alive. Except in this case, my heart stops and you've decided I'm dead, and now you're resuscitating me. I, I got a trouble with that, you know? And actually, some people have criticized and said, look, you're basically swapping cardiopulmonary death for brain death, right? So you're making, you're, you're resuscitating the heart, but, you know, switching, you know, which organ, you know, which, you know, determination you fulfill. But again, to me, it really seems like you know, the determination of death is being manipulated for this procedure. And the other thing is, let's say I have a do not resuscitate order and you've called me dead and now you're resuscitating. If I'm not actually dead, you're violating my autonomy because I said, don't do that. So I would argue that it probably violates the do not resuscitate order as well. Yeah. You know, just a, a, a side question. You, you mentioned previously, and, and as you mentioned in the previous podcast, that the Uniform Law Commission was saying that, you know, all of the stuff about the UDD, UDDA revisions really wasn't about organ donation. Mm-hmm. Although I have a little bit of question about that. But it seems this is all about organ donation. Or is there anything oh, yeah, else this that this could is, be about? This procedure is all about organ donation. Okay. And all like right. I said, you know, this procedure you know, isn't the reason why they want to change death from irreversible to permanent. However, this procedure would exploit that. Because let's be fair, if the law isn't changed, and right now the UDDA says cardiopulmonary death, or I should say it says circulatory respiratory death, is irreversible, technically they've broken the law because they've reversed it and then killed them, (laughs) right? Ay, 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 ay. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Third one. Third thing you wrote. By reversing circulatory death. Sorry, I said that badly. By reversing circulatory death and inducing brain death, the patient is being objectified. Chris. Okay. So I'm guessing that these patients are DNR, right? Because otherwise it would be actively coding while their hearts are stopping, right? So I would think they're, I think they're be DNR, right? And now you're resuscitating the patient against their will, right? Because that's not what they wanted. So right off there, you're violating their autonomy. So that in itself is a harm, but you're harming a patient not for their own good right? Now you've reduced this patient as a means to some end. You are using the patient as a means to some end. And let's be fair, this procedure in no way can help the patient. And in fact, it can only harm the patient. And so if you're doing something to someone that doesn't help them, only harms them, 
and you're doing it for some end about what you can get out of them, not for their own benefit, I don't see how you can call it anything except objectifying a human person. You know, you're violating their intrinsic human dignity. And the thing that I find most troubling, and I had mentioned this about the Uniform Determination of Death Act, is people don't go into medicine to see what they can get out of patients. Like, this is a vulnerable patient. Why are we doing something to a vulnerable patient that objectifies them, that strips them of their human dignity in order to get something out of them? I mean, it just, to me, as a physician, it's just mind-boggling. That's not why I went into medicine. And unfortunately, I think the authors of this article have lost sight of why they went into medicine and why people go into medicine. Because doctors aren't killers, they're healers. Yeah. Yeah, again, as you were speaking, I, I'm just thinking, how do you get, I mean, obviously informed consent has to be um, part of all of this. How do you explain this to family members or, or a power of attorney that, you know, here's your loved one. Um, if, you know, if we're not going to, if they, if they have a cardiac arrest, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to resuscitate them. However, after five minutes, we're going to do this process. I, how do you, how do you actually have that conversation to get informed consent out of this? Well, I don't know that they have informed consent because the patient is technically dead, but you've got to remember that's one of the problems with organ donation in general is people have misconstrued assent as consent, right? So for example, if you're listed as an organ donor on your driver's license, the DMV said, hey, do you want to be an organ donor? And you said yes or no. That's not informed consent, right? You're not told about what's going to be happening. And, you know, had you known, maybe you would have changed it. And so, first of all, the, the problem is there. I don't think there is actual informed consent. For no, any organ donation. So you're saying for any organ, well, really. at least at the DMV, at the, at the, the, the DMV, right. you know, you're not signing a paper, you know, they, there's just, you want to be a donor okay. or not, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. Being a donor is a beautiful thing, right? If I'm truly whole brain dead and allowed to have auto resuscitation and you're not, you know, inducing brain death in order to get, you know, get my organs. Sure. I'm happy to be an organ donor. But, you know, I don't know that consent is occurring because this procedure is happening now and people I talk to are unaware that this is even happening. So maybe they get consent. Maybe they say, you know, we're going to do this procedure, but I, I doubt they're going into much detail. Right. Yeah. And then let's be fair. The patient is dead, you know, quote, dead. So you can't get consent from the family or from the patient. Are you getting consent from the family. And if the patient know, you know, knew that this procedure was going to happen, you know, would they have actually consented to it? You know? So I don't know. I think there's a lot that needs to be answered. Yeah. I could see where this certainly would cause people to say, you know what, I'm not going to be an organ donor. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's, let's talk about the animal data. Um, so you wrote, uh, the fourth, um, the fourth critical comment, the animal data are concerning because animals who did not have occlusion of cerebral circulation developed, quote, return of spontaneous ventilation and motor activity, unquote. All right. What's going on here? Right. So basically, I think this is data from pigs again. Yep. This is pigs. Um, so, you know, pigs, you know, unfortunately, pigs are a good model for humans. And I don't know what that says about humanity. But, <laughs> you know, there you go. Um, I have some comments, but, but I'll, I'll hold my tongue on that one. But basically what happened is, you know, they had these pigs and they ligated some of, so, you know, cut off circulation to the brain in some and didn't cut off circulation in others. And then so in those patients that didn't have blood circulation blocked off to the brain, the brain... And the body tried to recover from this lack of oxygenation. And to me, just looking at that, that data as a clinician, it gives me pause. And the American College of Physicians actually came out with a wonderful statement, you know, regarding this procedure. 
And they said, and I quote, it is a deliberate act intended to prevent the potential for recovery of brain function, end quote. And I think it's really important, you know, we are acting on these patients as means to an end. We're treating them as objects and we're deliberately harming them. So the fact that in the animal data, the brain is trying to recover and we're actively preventing that, that's, that's scary. Yeah. I, I, get, I just have to read this quote because I, when I read this article, I just stopped dead in my tracks when I read this. It, it's it's stunning. And this is a quote. Um, so it says, recent experiments in pigs found that when ECMO was initiated after induced cardiac arrest and an eight-minute handoff period, so we're talking eight minutes, we're not talking five mm -hmm. minutes, we're talking eight minutes. Some pigs who did not have clamping of the arteries did have restoration of cerebral circulation, as you said, Chris. In some cases, the return of spontaneous ventilation and motor activity. Here's the kicker. These experiments suggest that clamping of these vessels is not merely precautionary, but necessary for preventing the return of any cerebral function. And I read, I'm going, you got to be kidding me. So instead of the fact that these pigs, as you said, after eight minutes, the brain is, you know, trying to work again, it's still working and, and you know, it's, it's trying to recover. I'm thinking about this now in human beings. So instead of saying, or instead of giving these researchers pause that, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Maybe we, we better look at this again. Instead, they're saying, no, this, this occlusion, it, it's, it's necessary for preventing the return of any cerebral function. We don't want the brain to come back. We gotta, you have to, it's not just precautionary. You know, you, we have to do this to make sure the brain dies. I'm right. like, and are you serious? Well, and that's why this is inducing brain death. Yeah. And that's why this is objectifying patients. You're harming patients. When you're specifically targeting the blood vessels that go to the brain to ensure that this patient is dead because you've now resuscitated them and had to successfully resuscitate them. Yeah. I mean, that's what I said. This should give any clinician pause. Yep. Yep. And these are the people who support this, which brings us to the last critical comment that uh, you, you stated. Uh, certain proponents of neuromothermic uh, regional perfusion serve on the ethics committee of the Organ Procurement and Transplant Network. Your comments, Chris. Well, so someone is able to write an article, no matter what they do in the literature, right? And this is in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And anytime I present, for example, let's say it's me, <coughs> anytime I have a presentation, I have to say, is there a disclosure? Now, all three authors of this article that sing the praises of this normal thermic regional perfusion syndrome did disclose that they served on the ethics committee of the organ procurement transplantation network, right? It's a volunteer thing. They're not getting any money for it. However, <coughs> I'm not saying they're biased, right? They could, you know, but the potential for bias is there. But what I am saying is that disclosure doesn't actually suffice to render authorship appropriate. And, and what I said in my statement was, by treading lightly on the ethical issues and emphasizing the promise, they appear to be attempting to influence medical and public debate regarding a topic about which they have a public duty to be dispassionate. And again, you know, Dr. Trogue, he's the head of bioethics, I believe, at Harvard. You know, he's very well thought of. He's a fellow observer for the Revision of the Uniform Determination of Death Act. You know, I have, you know, great respect for him. He's done a lot of research and stuff like that. But if he's on the committee for the Organ Procurement Transplantation Network, should he be the one writing this article? And, and I'm not sure that he should be, nor should his colleagues. And because 
if we really want to do the right thing, you can't have any possibility of bias. Now, all, there's always going to be some, you know, preconceived notions of what should happen, but I just, I don't know. I just don't think that these guys should have written this article because it gives me pause, you know, can I really believe what they're saying, you know? And again, I'm not trying to say they're biased, you know? They've done a lot of work in bioethics, but again, disclosure does not suffice to render authorship appropriate. Right. Now, Chris, we I'm going to link uh, put a link to the JAMA article uh, in the show notes again. And this is the only source of information that that, that I've seen um, for this for this protocol. But I'm, I'm wondering, have any of these uh, proponents of normothermic regional perfusion have they addressed any of the concerns that you've raised in any other places? Um, Not that I'm aware of. Now, again, this is just one article, and there have been other articles written about it, of course, you know, looking at how does this compare to, you know, the standard procedure for donation after cardiac death. Um, But the troubling part I have here is that they don't, they don't seem to sincerely address the ethical concerns. And in fact, they cite the American College of Physicians position statement on this, um, but they they seem to just kind of brush aside their concerns. And I don't think they have adequately addressed these concerns. And in fact, this statement, as you said, this this written statement is actually a letter to the editor that I wrote to JAMA, you know, in response to this Viewpoint article, which came out, you know, in June. And unfortunately, um, due to the amount of publications they have, JAMA won't be publishing this. So, so this, this will likely never be published. Um, but like I said, in the end of that statement, you know, although organ donation is a great gift, there are ethical ways to achieve it. And normal thermic perf- uh, regional perfusion is not one of those ways. Very well stated. Chris, what final words of wisdom do you uh, have for our listeners today? So I'd like to mention a couple of things. So first of all, I had talked about the intrinsic human dignity. Our culture has forgotten all about intrinsic human dignity. You know, we have value because we are members of the human species. We are rational animals. You know, from a Catholic standpoint, you'd say, you know, we're created in the image and likeness of God. But if you don't want to go that far, just by virtue of being, you know, as Robert, um, oh, Patrick Lee and Robert George would say, you know, we have the radical capacity for a rational nature. And because of that, all members of the human species should be treated with an intrinsic human dignity. And human dignity in secular bioethics is basically married to autonomy. And our culture in general feels that if you can't express your autonomy, that's your dignity. If if you don't, because you hear all these things about, well, it wouldn't be dignified. Well, that's attributed human dignity. That's not intrinsic human dignity. And the example that I like to use for this one is there's a procedure that was proposed by a professor um, from Norway. It's called whole body gestational donation. And basically what it does is you have these chronic brain dead patients we talked about, like Jahai McNath, right? So they can live for 20 years, you know, it's been the longest, they're going through puberty, they're gestating pregnancies, the juxt of the argument, or sorry, the crux of the argument is why should we let all these uteruses go to waste? You know, what um, whole body gestational donation says that we should inseminate these patients or impregnate, maybe that's more correct, impregnate these patients with other people's pregnancies. And if these chronic brain dead patients, you know, these severely disabled patients, they're not whole brain dead, they're not disintegrating, they're not dying, they are being maintained, and they are very much alive, 
if we're saying, well, we got to do something to get something out of them, that's just utilitarian thinking. And a lot of medicine seems to have lost its soul because there's so much of that going around. And in fact, one of the observers on the commission said, well, yeah, you know, they're dead anyway. We might as well use them for whole body gestational donation. And again, that's violating their intrinsic human dignity. What we should be doing is what um, the philosopher Hans Jonas said, um, and it's called the precautionary principle. In cases of doubt, we should be doing as clinicians, and I would argue as human beings, we should be bending over backwards in favor of life. We should be erring on the side of caution. If we're not sure that someone's dead, we shouldn't be trying to get things out of them. We shouldn't be using them as a means to an end. We need to presume that they are alive and treat them with the intrinsic human dignity that is their due by being a member of the human species. And I think if more people actually honored human dignity, I'm not sure we would be dealing with these issues, nor do I think we'd be even talking about this procedure, because I don't think people would be like, they'd be like, well, no, this is potentially harming patients, and they might still be alive, and just because we say they're dead doesn't mean they're dead. So, so the precautionary principle and intrinsic human dignity, those are the two last things I want to say. And procedures like normothermic regional perfusion syndrome, procedures like whole body gestational donation, those violate human dignity. And we really need to stand up and say, look, we will not allow people to be doing that. We're not allowing people to treat patients as means to ends. Dr. Krista Cook, thank you for joining me again on Bioethics on Air. Thank you very much, Joe. I really appreciate the opportunity. And like I said, if I hear anything about the drafting committee, I'll let you know. Let us know. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcast button on the main page and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.